My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for joining us this morning. I know it's cold and dreary, and there may be many warmer places you could be, but we're grateful that you're here with us as we continue to study in God's Word. Uh, if you're here for the first time, or if you're a regular attendee, or even a member, you know that this is typically where we mention our giving opportunities. You're able to give online through our website. You're able to give via scanning this QR code. You can even text now. In addition, if you'd like to give as you're leaving, our ushers will be able to receive any physical offering as well. So feel free to give however the Lord may lead you in that effort. Today we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts, and we're going to specifically be focusing in and finishing chapter 9 today. I've titled today's sermon, The Greatest Miracle, and as we're here in the midst of this story, we have to address this idea of miracles. You know, as I began to prepare for this this week and looked over this passage and saw some of the miracles that were described here through the work of Peter, I really began to wrestle just with this overall idea of miracles and what they are. You know, in this story, we see Peter not only heal a paralyzed man, but also raise someone from the dead. And as we look at these miracles, we have to first ask a few questions, right? First and foremost, we look at this and we have to ask the question, is this even possible, right? I mean, certainly we trust that they're in God's Word, that this is the divine inspired Word of God, so we recognize fully that God can certainly make these things possible, but even recognizing the fact that someone paralyzed could get up and walk, someone who was dead, who was dead for days being raised from the dead, immediately puts our attention, gets us on notice going, what is going on? To us, it should be a clear signal of the power and majesty of God. Yet even in that, as we ask that question, we have to ask a second question as we look at this. As incredible as these are, are these significant or in the greatest miracles that God would perform? I mean, I'd have to say about you in terms of party tricks, raising some from the dead is pretty impressive if we're being honest with one another. But indeed, is that the greatest miracle that we could see God perform? As we study this, as incredible and as mind-blowing and shaping that could be, I would argue that that's but a pale shadow of the greatest miracle that God can perform. Now, I think we're going to see that throughout this passage. There are a few other miracles that are described here beyond just this idea of raising people from the dead and uh, seeing a paralyzed person walk. We're seeing some other miracles that are on display, and one of those that we'll find at the end of this, I believe, is indeed the greatest miracle of all. Now, as we typically do, if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. The Word of the Lord says, Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydia. There he found a man named Ananias, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. 
So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows, widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and walked her, raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. If you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for you and for the grace of miracles you provide for us. Today, my hope and my prayer as we study this passage is that we would not lose sight of the miracle that has occurred by you sending Jesus to pay for the debt of our sin and shame. The miracle that you would come and see people repent of their sin. That you would display your goodness through acts like this. That you would continue to be involved in your creation. These are truly all miracles and testimonies to the character of a loving and gracious God. Father, it is my prayer that as we study this passage that we would draw closer to you. That we could see more about who you are and learn about your character And that we could then respond to who you are in faith and in trust. Father, we are thankful for you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as we study this passage today, really as I've narrowed it down, I think there's one primary point that this entire passage is looking at here for us. If you're taking notes, that point is going to be that God uses ordinary people for extraordinary tasks. God uses ordinary people for extraordinary tasks. And you can see that encapsulates our entire passage here as we're looking at this. Now, if indeed we're looking at this, why is that the most significant point? Well, we have to understand who Peter is. And to begin to do that, we've got to do a little history as we're studying the Bible, right? We've seen Peter throughout the Gospels, and we see him now as perhaps the chief apostle of the church in this time. Yet in the midst of this, Peter is not this extraordinary man. Peter is not a perfect example of whom we would put in front of us as a prototype of what the Christian is supposed to look like. That Peter is an ordinary guy with a funny accent from a town that no one has heard of. Peter is a fisherman. Peter is a poor man. Peter has no real education. He is as ordinary as you can get in this day and age. Going beyond that, it doesn't seem that he has any special giftings. He's not perhaps the most eloquent speaker like Paul is. He's not someone who is directly related to Jesus like James. He's not a doctor like Luke. You perhaps see what we're putting down, that Peter is an ordinary person. Yet, in the midst of that, despite being an ordinary person, God uses him to do extraordinary things. God uses him to do miraculous things. God uses him to see that the gospel goes forth not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And so as we look at this, we have to consider this fact that indeed one of the greatest miracles that can be performed is the fact that God would use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. 
My hope and my prayer is that that's an encouragement to you as we even begin recognizing that you and I, with all our strengths, with all our weaknesses, with all the flaws and shortcomings that we focus upon in our own lives, not only do we have value before a holy, righteous God, we also are a part of his plan to see the world honor and glorify him. That we are cogs in this wheel, this moving machine, so that gospel may go forth. Yes, perhaps we might be a small cog, but we are a part of the machine of the progress of God. And so keep in mind as we're looking at this, this overarching umbrella of God using ordinary people for extraordinary tasks. Now, as we get into the text, as we look at this, let's look at the first few verses more in depth. Starting with verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, And Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So right here, our passage begins with us looking at Peter again. And I know that after the last few weeks of spending some time with Paul and his conversion, that it seems a little bit strange that we're back to Peter. But as we're looking at this, we have to remember that the first few chapters of Acts, roughly the first 12 chapters or so, are looking at Peter. He's our main character in this story to a degree. He is the guy that we're following and hearing from things happening in his life. And beginning in Acts 13 and on, it transitions pretty exclusively to Paul. That from 13 on, we're going to be walking with Paul. We're going to hear about his missionary journeys. We're going to hear about his many difficulties. That we're going to spend a great deal of time with Paul. Don't you worry. But right now, we're back to Peter. Now, Peter is portrayed here as leaving Jerusalem to travel to these churches that have been established. Peter's the only apostle that we really hear of doing this beyond Paul. And I think this is a testimony to God's grace in his life of him going forth to be with these people, to see what God is doing. Now, keep in mind in this moment that the church expanded greatly here. We have the persecution that began within Jerusalem that scattered the church across the known world. That's not to mention that the time of Pentecost where you had people from all nations who are here to hear from God who've scattered about. That already we've seen there's progress in establishing churches across Israel, of course. But we even see that there's gospel presence beginning in places as far away as Ethiopia and Turkey. Hundreds of miles away from this little town in Israel. And so our story is picking up with Peter who's in a similar area to when we last encountered Philip. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch just a few weeks ago when we're studying this? He's in the same area. It's along the coast of Israel, north of Jerusalem. And so we join up with Peter here in Lydda. It's about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And he finds this man named Ananias who's paralyzed. Now, as we look at this, you might ask, well, hey, Ananias, you know, we've got a name mentioned here. Is this significant, right? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe this is his actual name. We don't really know much about Ananias because he doesn't appear anywhere else in the scriptures, in fact. Even searching through Christian history and tradition, we see nothing more about Ananias. 
In fact, this name, Ananias, is so common that it's, a, it's so common that we would look at it as like, hey, this is like a name like Bill or John, right? We know a couple of people with those names, right? That Ananias is that equivalent, that it's a very common name. What I want you to get, what I want you to see there is that this is an ordinary person. This is an ordinary person who is just here. It's an ordinary person who doesn't appear anywhere else in the scriptures, He's an ordinary man who does nothing else in church history, right? Why is that important? Well, we have a man here who's just an ordinary person, who's hopeless, who's a burden to himself and to others with no chance of him getting any better. Yet being a part of what God would do in his life and being a, displaying the testimony of God's miraculous grace he essentially begins a revival here in Lydda and Sharon where people, the entire residents, the entire villages respond to the good news of the gospel through the visible demonstration of healing and the proclamation of the gospel message. An entire community comes to faith because of him being a willing recipient of the grace of God. Now, Peter's a part of this story, and he's a crucial part of this story. We see Peter encounter him, and we don't really know how Peter got there. Maybe he received a vision from the Lord. Maybe he just felt an urging. Maybe he just encountered him on the street. We don't know how he came to him. We do know he came to him, and he proclaims to him that he should rise and make his bed. Now, if you've spent any time around children, particularly teenagers, you know that Peter is displaying real true power. I have told my children to make the bed and nothing happens. I tell them to get up and nothing happens. Yet Peter says a few words and this paralyzed man who has not moved in eight years gets up and makes his bed. Peter will be teaching his parenting class at 3 p.m. today if you're interested in attending. But nonetheless, what we see is that Peter displays real, true power. This is a man who was paralyzed. When we look in the Greek, what does it say about him being bedridden, who was paralyzed? It means he was bedridden and paralyzed. That is exactly what happened. And so this man gets up from his bed, and he is now made whole. Maybe he did a little dance. Maybe he celebrated. We don't know what happened, but he is up from his bed, and he now is whole. You see, it's an incredible moment that moves the residents of the community to faith. You see, it tells us in verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. This moment is just a miraculous moment of this man being an ordinary man who is a part of sparking an awakening, a revival within his community. That all it took was Peter as an ordinary guy walking through this village, seeing this man, proclaiming the gospel to him, and saying, you are healed in the name of Jesus. And God performed this miracle of not only restoring this man's legs, but performed the miracle of changing hearts and minds so that people might see, hear, and respond to the glory of his name. Now, this miracle is not the first time we've seen Peter do something like this. Maybe you remember Peter's first miracle that we see kind of occurring here in Scripture within the book of Acts particularly, that we see in Acts 3 that he heals this crippled man who's just laying at the temple gate. 
that in fact gets Peter into his first uh, big argument with the authorities because this man comes marching into the temple with them proclaiming, I am healed, I've been made whole. In fact, I think that this miracle here, this actually helps us see some similarities between Peter and Paul throughout the book of Acts. And I think this is important for us to understand something. I don't think Luke's doing this by accident. First and foremost, we see through their stories that both of them will heal multiple crippled people. There are multiple occasions through Acts we see this miracle occur. Both will be arrested and jailed. And even in the midst of that, they'll be miraculously delivered from their arrest and jail. Both will be highly exalted by the church in the book of Acts. Both are bold witnesses before the authorities. Both confront false prophets during their ministries. You see, I think these parallels we see between these two men are significant for us. This not only shows the anointing of God upon both of these men in their ministries, but also I would submit to you that I think Luke is trying to draw some attention to something here for us. That we recognize as we talk about Paul here, we already see the reception that he's received from people within the church, right? It's been a rather lukewarm reception. So, hi, I'm Paul. Wait, are you the Paul that was killing Christians? Yes, and I follow Jesus now. This is not a trick, right? No one's going to be nervous about speaking to him. And I think one of the things Luke is doing here, again, using what God has called him to write, God in his providence recognizes this is an issue. And he's addressing these things to display that Paul is an apostle who's been called by Jesus, just like Peter, just like Luke, just like Matthew and all these other men. He's displaying this similar characteristic in ministry so that when people read the story, when they encounter the good news of Jesus, they also recognize that, you know, that Paul was about as bad as you can get. But now he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus who's doing ministry within the local church for the good and glory of God. Now see, there are also echoes in this section of miracles with Jesus' ministry as well, right? Jesus did some things like this throughout his time on earth, didn't he? As we read through the gospel stories, we see him healing the lame. We see him raising people from the dead. Those things are occurring. And I think it's interesting that the language here used by Peter in this miracle and in the following miracle is almost exactly what Jesus used to perform similar miracles. So I would argue that what Peter is doing here is that not that he's finding that there's power in these exact words, right? If we get the magic spell, right, it's going to raise someone from the dead. No, that's not what's happening here. Rather, I think that what Peter is doing and what he's modeling for us as, again, ordinary people that want to be used by God to do extraordinary things, you see, he is following in the footsteps of his mentor and savior, Jesus. You see, Peter is practicing discipleship as it should be. You see, discipleship to Jesus means that we are following in his footsteps, striving to live life as he has called us to live. Simply put, discipleship means, do you see Jesus? Be more like him. Very simply. Now, as we recognize, if we are following Jesus in any way, 
we recognize that we are not perfect in these efforts of discipleship, right? You know, if Jesus sets the path, um, we are like a wayward child veering off on either side, right? And sometimes he uses the leash of the Holy Spirit to pull us back in line. And what we see here is that we recognize that discipleship means that we're going to fail sometimes. When we look at the New Testament, we see that both Peter and Paul make mistakes. They talk about their sins openly. They're recorded in Scripture. What we recognize is that the truth is that discipleship means we're following Jesus, but it doesn't require perfection. Throughout Peter's ministry that we see recorded here, not only in the Gospels, but throughout the New Testament, we see him make a lot of mistakes. We see him literally cut off a guy's ear when they came to arrest Jesus. He was in Jesus' youth group and he cut off his ear. If that's not a party foul, I don't know what is. He cut off somebody's ear. When Jesus is arrested, he's standing before a group of people and this little servant girl, like Molly's age, about four, asks him, do you know this Jesus? I thought I saw you with him. And he denies Jesus before him, before this little girl. And the context tells us that he's afraid of this little girl, that she might rat on him and tell everybody that this guy has been walking with Jesus. We see that in the book of Galatians, we see that Peter, who's been this kind of first missionary to the Gentiles, this first man who's going forth to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who are not Jewish, we see him get caught up in some drama in the book of Galatians where he shuns these Gentile believers in Galatia. And we see Paul write and say, hey, guess what? I went to Peter and told him, quit being an idiot and act like you have some sense. And Peter said, you're right. Let me act like I've got some sense and spend time with these Gentiles because they are a part of God's family. Peter's not a perfect person. He's an ordinary man who makes mistakes like you and I. Yet, he is used to do incredible, miraculous things. What we see here in Throughout the scriptures, a guy who continually makes mistakes and fails, yet does incredible things in the name of King Jesus. Maybe you're looking at this and you're, just, you're asking a question, what, what am I supposed to do with that, Walter? If that's true, what does that mean for me? Well, simply put, I think that means that there is room for you to make mistakes and still follow Jesus. That means that if you're trying to move forward in your discipleship journey, this relationship you have with Jesus, it doesn't mean that we willingly pursue sin, right? Because that is not what God's calling us to do. But it means that there's room for us to make mistakes. Not a one of us is perfect. And perhaps the best advice that I can give you here is you're just simply wrestling with this and saying, what do I do? Perhaps you should just take a step forward in following Jesus. Perhaps you should just take a step forward. Take a step towards the goodness of God and what he's doing in this world. What does that look like for you? Maybe for some of you, it's just simply reading your Bible consistently. 
Maybe that's never been a priority. Well, by God's grace, not only is that what we're doing in terms of our Life Connect groups this semester, but we have Sunday morning stuff that we're training through. We've got stuff on Wednesday night online that you can be a part of. But maybe it's simply saying, I don't read my Bible consistently. And that's my next step to try and be more like Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. Maybe it's joining a Bible study, right? Maybe you're saying, hey, I need to be in community. I need to grow. And I've never done that. This is important. Well, guess what? We have Life Connect groups. We have stuff on Sunday morning. We even have online things on Wednesday. In fact, we have an in-person meeting on Wednesday with some older ladies in our church. Like there are options for you to be involved and engaged. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I've never discipled someone. I've never taken someone by the hand and said, you know, I think you and I can grow together. Can we do this together? Maybe your first step is to simply go to someone and say, you know, I think we can do this. You and I, we can figure it out. Maybe you've got something else in mind that you're saying, hey, if I'm going to follow this Jesus, if I'm going to take a step, I've got to do this. Whatever it might be that if you want to follow Jesus... Just take a step towards him and let him lead you. Just take a step towards him and trust that he is there working in your life already and he is ready and willing to move towards you. Now we see Peter doing this first miracle and it's a pretty impressive miracle. It's a pretty incredible thing to see. Yet our passage does not end with Peter performing just one miracle. No, today you are lucky because today is a buy one, get one free miracle story because he performs yet another one here in the coming verses. Look with me at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So we pick up here in the second half of the story, and we see this town called Joppa enter into the story. And this is a very significant location for us from the Old Testament. You see, this is the location that Jonah set sail from in order to flee God's call to the Gentiles. If you remember from the book of Jonah, Jonah is told to go to the people of Nineveh, proclaim the good news of the gospel to them, that terrible things, judgment's going to come. But if you repent, God will relent and offer grace and mercy. And Jonah, like a good Jewish man during that time, says, nope, those Gentiles are not in the family. I'm out of here. 
And then it leads to the whole story. He gets swallowed by a whale on a, you know, all this fun stuff, gets vomited on dry land, goes to Nineveh and proclaims the gospel, which is essentially what he says is, turn or burn. And that leads to a revival in the city of Nineveh. The, the entire country repents and begins to follow the God of Israel. I'm shortening with a lot of biblical history here. Bear with me, okay? Why is that crucial? Why is that history important for us to understand as we look at this passage? We see that God is a God of redemption who's telling a new story on top of this Old Testament, building from this foundation. And Warren Wearsby actually helps us see this connection very clearly. I'll read from his commentary on this section. Jonah went to Joppa to avoid going to the Gentiles, but Peter in Joppa received his call to go to the Gentiles. Because Jonah disobeyed God, the Lord sent a storm that caused the Gentile sailors to fear. Because Peter obeyed the Lord, God sent the wind of the Spirit to the Gentiles, and they experienced great joy and peace. You see, God is not doing away with the Old Testament, but he's rewriting our understanding of this. We look back at Joppa in the Old Testament and go, this is a place where man fell and sinned and struggled to obey the command of God. Yet in the New Testament, we see this is a place where man did not fail, but trusted in the Lord and obeyed in his call and his wisdom. And the Lord blessed him and his people. Now this gives us context for Peter's continued story here. Now, as we enter into this section, we've met this disciple named Tabitha, and we see that she's just died, and she's a significant figure, perhaps within the local church here, that she's known for her mercy ministry towards those in need, particularly by making clothing, among other efforts. Like in Aeneas, we don't know much about her either. In fact, uh, the only things we really know about her are some context surrounding her name, uh, particularly, her name implies that she was perhaps currently or had been a slave. This was not a common uh, Hebrew or Greek name in this time. And so we believe, as we look at this, she may have been brought from another area here, either as a slave or perhaps uh, some other method. But regardless, she was an insignificant person in this grand scheme of things. If we're talking about big, huge things, she's an ordinary person in the midst of this. In fact, one commentator suggested that based upon some similarities in language we see here, Luke 8 and Acts 6, that maybe she's a widow who's just ministering to other widows. Whatever it might be, whatever her circumstance is, I hope you see what we're painting this picture of. She's an ordinary person who's a part of God's extraordinary story. No matter these things, she's implied to be if not a significant, at least an influential part of the church in Joppa. She's so beloved by this church that when she dies and they prepare her for the funeral, they decide that since Peter is near, they need to send some disciples to him so that he might perhaps be able to help. Now we have to keep in mind the context of this passage as we're reading this, that at this point there is no record of the apostles raising the dead. That we've got no evidence that that's even something that they can do. There's certainly stories of the miracles they've already performed. They've heard the stories, perhaps, of Jesus raising people from the dead, of him raising himself from the dead. We, we don't know what they're thinking here, but we, we believe as they're asking Peter to come, they're simply saying, 
we have faith that the Lord might send Peter either to raise her from the dead or to simply minister to our hearts in this time of crisis and grief. Regardless of what their reasons are, they call for Peter and Peter obeys. He comes. Now, Peter arrives and he's immediately set upon by a group of grieving widows who've been helped by her ministry. They're showing these tunics and other things that that Tabitha has made for them. They've probably talked about other ways that she's provided for them. And they're distraught, as you might imagine, because she's perhaps been the chief caretaker of some of these widows. That there's no community support system. That in this time, that if you do not have a male heir who can provide for you or a family who can care for you, you are on your own. Best of luck. And so these widows are grieving. They're distraught. Peter meets these women and perhaps he decides to help. Perhaps he was led by the Spirit to help. We don't know what led him to this moment, but he clears the room. He clears the room. He kneels down beside this body. And the text is sure to say several times that this is a body, that she is dead. She's not asleep, she's dead. She's been dead for days, okay? It started to smell a little bit. They put some incense in there. She is dead. I know I'm being a little graphic, but I'm trying to get across. She's dead, okay? So he kneels down beside this body. He prays, and he commands Tabitha to rise. You see, she is then raised from the dead, moving the church and many others in this community to trust in the Lord. Even here in this section, there are some similarities between some other moments we see in Scripture. In fact, we see that Jesus has raised the dead several times throughout the Gospels, right? We perhaps think back to John chapter 11 where he raises Lazarus. But we think back to Mark chapter 5 where he raises Jairus' daughter. And in fact, I think that that Mark 5 connection is so important here because the language that is used here, when we break it down within the Greek, when we look at the Aramaic, it's the exact same wordage that is used in Mark chapter 5, raising the daughter. In fact, the very things that Peter does here in terms of kneeling, praying, taking her by the hand to carry her out to her loved ones are all the exact same things that Jesus did. Now again, we're not pointing to any significance of this is how you necessarily do this in this moment. There's not power to be found in those actions, but rather we see Peter recognizing the one he follows. He's modeling him. He's working through this thing. Now Peter's account here ends with almost an aside here in 43. We have the church is celebrating that she lives. These widows are no longer grieving because their caretaker lives. The surrounding community is rejoicing because they've seen someone come from death to life. They're celebrating the fact that there is a God who is powerful enough to raise the dead, and they are responding in faith. And of all of those things that Luke could end on, he ends on 43 And it says, he stayed in Joppa, referring to Peter, for many days with one Simon and Tanner. I think it's significant that the account here ends with this reference of Peter staying with Simon. 
You see, Simon was a Jewish believer from what we understand. Again, ordinary guy. We don't really have any other context about who he is beyond the fact that we know he's a Jewish believer. He's a part of the church. That's why he's staying with them. And that he's a tanner. He also does not appear anywhere else throughout Acts or in church history. He's not anywhere to be found. Now, why is this significant? Why is this important? Well, I think what we see here is that this is a further example of God breaking down the dividing walls in the flesh. You see, though Simon is a Jewish believer, who's someone who's trusted in the Lord, he's a tanner, and that creates some problems within a Jewish culture. You see, a tanner's place of business is a place that good Jews did not go. Uh, they were required to have their place of business 50 cubits outside the city. They were considered to be ritually unclean because of the work they did with slaughtering animals and tanning hide. They were not people that good Jewish believers would associate with. In fact, this is such an issue within the Jewish culture that there's actually a rabbinical law that you can find today that states that if a woman finds out her fiancé is a tanner, she can break off the engagement at no penalty to her whatsoever. That is unheard of in the Jewish culture of this time, right? That a woman would have such freedom and rights to say, he's a tanner, I'm allowed to get out of this. You don't find something like that anywhere else. So this is a significant point that Luke is drawing us to because he's saying this guy is someone that the good Jewish people would not associate with. Yet we see God softening Peter's heart to the point that he will willingly associate with the lowly and undesirable people of his culture. You see, I'll say again, Peter is someone that we sometimes revere, sometimes mock. Yet at his core, he's just an ordinary guy. He's a fisherman from an irrelevant town, an insignificant town in Israel, who's got a funny accent that everyone knows he's from there. Yet God is using him to do the miraculous. Not only does he perform these miracles of healing and resurrection, he demonstrates what I would submit to you is the greatest miracle of all, the changing of the human heart. You see, Peter's story takes him from a sinful, selfish man to a disciple of Jesus, to disgrace at Jesus' crucifixion, and then to faithful obedience to the Lord for the rest of his days. In fact, he's changed so much that not only is he no longer afraid of little girls, but he's willing to associate with Gentiles and unclean people. That what we see here from Peter is the miracle of the new heart, that is, the redemption that God brings to humanity. That when Jesus enters into the story and when you and I repent of our sins and trust in Jesus for salvation, our hearts are changed. We are no longer those sinful people. We have been made new. We have been found to be righteous and holy before the Lord. We have gone from sojourners and strangers. We've gone from sinners in rebellion to co-heirs with Christ. We are children of God. And again, I would submit to you the truth of this is, is that 
we see many miracles described in Scripture. From moments like the Exodus to people being raised from the dead to these miraculous healings, these are all incredible moments. But what I would submit to you is the most incredible moment, the incredible miracle of them all is that God could take sinful men and women like you and I and change our hearts so that we might become a new creation. That that is the heart of the gospel story. That I once was this, and then there came this day where I encountered Jesus, and now I am new and clean. That indeed, I think the scriptures would support this evidence that the greatest miracle of all is that God himself would change a sinful human heart in rebellion against him and call this heart home into the relationship it's always sought, to the love and affection it's always desired, to the place that he was intended to call home. Today I would simply ask you, have you experienced this great miracle? Have you experienced this, the greatest miracle that can be offered of seeing your heart changed by the good news that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. That if you're here today and you have, then let us praise God and let us celebrate the goodness of God that he would redeem sinful people and call you his. If you've not received this grace, then let us recognize that there's nothing you need to do to clean up. There's nothing you need to change about yourself right now. The only thing you need to do is to proclaim to Jesus that you are a sinner in need of redemption. Everything else about changing your heart, changing your life, changing how you act and think is done by the Lord Jesus. That it has been said that perhaps the only thing we contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. I would expound upon that a little bit and that we must call upon the name of the Lord to receive forgiveness for the sin that made salvation necessary. So today I simply would put in front of you that if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, your Savior, let us rejoice and celebrate that we are a part of the family of God. That if you're here and you've not received that grace, then let us rejoice and celebrate that today you have found that grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Here in the next few moments, I'll lead us in a time of corporate prayer, but before that, we'll have a few moments of, of silence. This isn't just to awkwardly transition or do anything like that, but this is so that you and I, as sinful people, might go before a holy God and offer confession to him, that we could tell him of our sin and shame, we could ask for his grace and mercy. We could cry out for forgiveness. And then perhaps praise him for his goodness, and his love, and his affection. After we pray, we'll have a time of standing and singing, of celebrating the good news that Jesus Christ would seek and save the lost. My hope and my prayer is that you would stand as a redeemed child of God, proclaiming the goodness of our resurrected Savior. If the Lord is moving in your life, I encourage you, please speak to myself. Please speak to Pastor Brian. We'd love to hear what God is doing in your life. I'll be right here celebrating the goodness of God with you if you want to speak. But if you would, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Would you bow your heads?
Father, we come to you today simply seeking to receive. For some of us, we're seeking to receive salvation of coming to you proclaiming that we are sinners who are in need of a Savior. That this is the first time we've cried to you and we're in desperate need of redemption. Others are coming, confessing their sins, trusting that we follow you, Lord, but we're not perfect. That we make mistakes, that we fall short of the standard that has been set by you, Father. But we trust that there is grace sufficient to forgive even the most sinful of people. And Lord, there are yet others who've repented, who've trusted you, Father. And they're even now praising you for your goodness, celebrating the goodness of God and the grace that you've shown us. Father, wherever we might be in this spectrum of joy, of fear, of this emotional roller coaster that is life, Father, it is my prayer that every man, woman, and child who is here might have an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. That we could celebrate this gospel message of this perfect man coming to earth to pay for the debt of our sin and shame, dying the death we deserve, bearing the weight of our sin upon the cross, going to the tomb, and then rising again three days later. Yet when Jesus escaped the tomb, our sin and shame was left dead and buried, and he walked out of that grave proclaiming that he has all power and authority. So even now, Lord, we trust that Jesus still has that power and authority to proclaim over his people. We trust that his name still has power to save there is no other name by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus. So, Father, today, if there is anyone here who needs to follow you, Father, I pray that you convict them of their sin and lead them to repentance before you. Father, if there is anyone here who has any sin that has not been confessed before you, that they're unrepentant of, that you would convict them and draw them to you so that they might be reunified with you, Father. Father, I pray that today we could celebrate and sing of your great name, rejoicing in the presence of Jesus, celebrating the goodness of the gospel, and that we have life eternal in you, Father. Lord, thank you for all the things you've done for us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.